You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. My name is Jaina Carson. I've been attending Hope for three years now, and please stand for today's reading. Our passage today is Judges 2, verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Israel, from Egypt, and brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the The angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel. The people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to continue in our study through the book of Judges. We started last week, and we will continue all the way till the end, not all today though, so don't get, you know, don't panic on me, right? But yet we want to cover, well, part of these first two chapters again. You say, Mark, why are you taking so much time to go through these first two chapters? Because if we are, we actually said this last week, but for a reminder, and maybe for those that have not been here yet in this series, that the first two chapters are sort of like... Um, sort of a compilation of the entire book, or sort of like a museum, an encapsulation of all of the history of these 340 years of the nation of Israel. And so we're going to spend a little more time in these first two chapters as we prepare ourselves for the rest of the book and for our study. So let me kind of bring you up to speed if you were not able to be here last week. Joshua has died. It's the way that the book of Judges starts out. And he has led Israel into the promised land of Canaan. So Joshua succeeded Moses as Moses' assistant, so to speak. But yet Joshua has not named a successor and he has passed away. And so what we see through the book of Judges is 340 years of the life of the nation without any national leadership. They have no president. They have no prime minister. Uh, they, they have no individual that could be looked at as a figurehead for the nation. Throughout the book of Judges in these 340 years, what God does is he raises up what is called Judges, the namesake of the book, heroic leaders, to lead them. People, as you know, to be like Samson and Gideon and so on and so forth as well. But what we understand as Joshua has led them into the land of Canaan is that there is unfinished business. And the unfinished business is that there are Canaanites that are still living in Canaan. And so God has directed the nation of Israel to drive out all the Canaanites because they are idol worshipers. And so we start where we ended last week in verse 4 of chapter 1. And it says, and then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites in and the Perizzites into his hand and are into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezak. 
And so when we look at this, we think, well, God's directive is to simply drive the Canaanites out of the land. So we see a great thing happening, right? That, that we, we seek success all right at the very beginning of the book of Joshua. But in the book of Judges, things are not always as they appear. And so what we think is a win is not necessarily a win at all. In fact, Tim Keller in one of his writings concerning the book of Judges says that the book is full of half-hearted discipleship. It is half-hearted obedience or half-hearted belief or convenience that trumps obedience is what, they, what we find throughout the book of Judges. That it's more convenient to follow God my way than to follow God in the way that he is designed. So we look down at verse 6 and it starts out by saying that Adonai Bazak, and, and Adonai Bazak is that king of the people of Bazak. And says, Adonai Bazak fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his toes. Now, I love the Old Testament, don't you? Isn't it really neat how it talks about things like this? So he escapes from that of the conquering of these people or the killing of 10,000 of them. And he escapes. So they catch him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toe, uh, toes. And so you wonder, well, why did they do that? Well, I'll tell you in just a moment. And so we continue reading, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me, he says. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So I thought about all of this, putting us all together for you this morning, just for a sidebar for a moment, then we get back to our narrative, that it brings this question up. I think as we study through the Old Testament, study through the book of Judges, that how can a loving God do such a cruel thing, right? How can a loving God do such a cruel thing? How can God, how can God send one group of people into another group of people and drive them out of the land? How can a loving God do that? Because I think people, when they begin to read the Old Testament, they struggle with the way that God works in the lives of people. So what appears to be unjust in the actions of God is actually God's perfect and righteous judgment being carried out through the nation of Israel. He said, but Mark, it seems to be pretty cruel of God to do these kinds of things. Well, to understand what God is doing, we go back to the very words of the king of Bezak himself. Because he says to us, or he never says, that God's actions toward him are unfair. In fact, he says it's justice is what he says. And we all cry for justice. Because he says, God has repaid me, is, is what he is quoted saying. That God made it clear way back as far as the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 18. He made it clear that the Canaanites were to be driven out of this land because of their excessive wickedness. So these are not innocent people. These are not uninformed or unaware, unaware people. That God brings judgment and Israel is God's instrument of judgment. It's a mandate. It's a mandate from God. Yes. So now you're thinking, wait a minute. Maybe I can be God's instrument of judgment, right? Because I have some people that I would like to cut off their thumbs and their big toes. Yeah, well, why do they do that? First of all, because simply they take a warrior king, they remove his thumbs so he can no longer hold a sword. They remove his big toes so he can no longer balance himself in that of a battle position. So you see kind of what they're doing. 
And so this is the way that they're working as an instrument of God's judgment toward the people of, of Canaan. The Canaanites is what they're doing. And so when I realize this, I look at this and I think, wait a minute. Is this what happened in the Crusades? And it's not at all. Because what God does is that after the coming of Christ, after the coming of the Christ, God deals with humanity differently, is what he does. Jesus came with the gospel. He laid down his life. He doesn't take life. He came that all should come to repentance. Yet one day what we do realize is that King Jesus King Jesus will come back as the righteous judge and he will judge all things and he will make all injustices right. We understand that. But that is his job. That is not our job as Christians. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to simply draw people to Christ through the loving kindness of God. So that's not our job. So when we look at this, we kind of frame in, I think, in a very good sense and understanding of why God does the things he does in the Old Testament. But let me go back to our story. Now it's verse 19 of chapter 1. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron chariots. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak, and the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Well, you think, well, mate, Mark, it's understandable because the, the people, the, the Jebusites, oh, they have like they have tanks. Israel have foot soldiers, right? So come on, God, give them a break. We understand that why they can't drive out the Canaanites from the land. We kind of get an understanding. So if we feel for them, then in verse 27, and Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bershon and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and his villages or the inhabitants of, of Ebalim and in its villages or the Klingons and their villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo. The word Klingon is not there, is it? See, I wanted to see if you were still with me. The Old Testament has a way of kind of, you know, curing insomnia sometimes, right? All these names, they seem so unimportant. No, they're very important to us. So we go back. Klingons are not. How many of you know what Klingons are? Do you know what those things are yet? That's Star Trek. I don't know. You know, that's kind of a way. If you don't know what it is, Google it. Not now, but later. Okay. Yes. But go back, it says, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages or the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, if you're going to underline anything in your Bible, which do you know it's okay to do that? It really is. Then underline these next four words when Israel grew strong, because perhaps of all the words that we're going to find throughout the book of Judges, in order to understand what's happening with Israel, you have to really record these four words within your mind that when Israel grew strong, what he's saying is that they have the capacity to obey God to the fullest. God has strengthened them to the capacity that they can fully complete the mission that God has called them to complete. But let's read the whole verse. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites in forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. 
Now, for all of you that kind of felt sorry for the Israelites, you're retracting your sympathy right now, right? Because God equipped them, but they did not do what God had called them to do. That's an important thought that we will see woven throughout the entire book of the book of Judges. But the Canaanites are stubborn people. They just won't leave. So what does Israel do? They try the very best they can and they come up with a solution. They, come, they become economically creative. And they say, if we can't drive them out, then let's enslave them and let them work for us is what they said. So they make this logical financial solution to their problem. Dave Ramsey would be pleased with them, but God is not. You know who Dave Ramsey is, right? You guys don't know who Klingons I don't know. Well, anyway, let's keep going, right? So you understand. Yes. So what we find in this first chapter is Israel stating their reasons why they can't do what God has called them to do. They're making their case before God. Have you ever done that before? God has called you to do something. You say you can't do it. So you make your case against God or before God of all the reasons why you cannot do this. But when we read in verse 28, when Israel grew strong, we began to scratch our heads. We begin to say, hmm, I wonder if it's really true that Israel can't do what God has called them to do. So Israel has made their case. What does God think about all of this? Well, it's a great question. Glad you asked. Chapter two, verse one. Now the angel of the Lord stopped for a moment. Who is the angel of the Lord? We will find this occasionally in the Old Testament. Who is the angel of the Lord? We know theologically, historically, we believe it to be God himself. I think theologically, we can pretty well say that it is actually Jesus. And so the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgad to Bochim. And he said, I brought up from Egypt and I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant to you. Wow, those are powerful words. We can't say that. God can say it. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down the altars. But look what he says. After all of their reasons why they can't do what he's called them to do. But you have not obeyed my voice. But you have not obeyed my voice, he says. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you. In other words, I will not do what I've called you to do on your behalf. Because what we realize is we teach here so many times. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Man's responsibility. So in our spiritual growth, you and I have a responsibility here. So he says, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall come. They become thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. The first of two points this morning. The first is this. Never be fooled into thinking that we can live with what we see as inconsequential areas of unbelief. These minute places in our life, these minute areas of that of unbelief will always come at too high of a price for you. You have to understand that. But before we kind of put some some flesh on those bones, let me show you what God is doing here. Because in verse one of the text that we just read is a powerful pattern that we see how God reveals himself in so many ways throughout scripture. 
because before God ever talks to Israel about their disobedience, and God has made it extremely clear that they've been disobedient, even though they've given them, he's, they've given them all these excuses, that before he ever talks about their disobedience, he reminds them of who he is, his character and his nature. He reminds them of those things. He reminds them that he is the one that brought them out of Egypt. Not because they deserved it, but because of his great love for them. He also reminds them that he made a promise to them back to Abraham. And he has never broken that promise and never will break that promise. Even when they break it time and time again. And so I love this, that God talks to them about his great love for them. He expresses his character and nature long before he ever talks to them about their disobedience to them is what he does. It's a reminder of God's grace and faithfulness. It's the gospel Old Testament style is what it is. First John 4 and 19, it reminded me of this verse. It says that we love because he first loved us. And I use this verse at weddings a lot. But contextually, what this verse means, it means that we love him because he first loved us. That is God's faithfulness. What is the, view, the fuel for my obedience? You see, that's why the angel of the Lord talks about God being a deliverer, God being a promise keeper. It talks about that of the great love and faithfulness of God before it talks about that of obedience. Why? Because the fuel for my obedience in my life is not my own ability. It's not my faithfulness because we know that doesn't last very long. It's not my promises because we know that we break them often with God. So it is God's faithfulness. It's God's promises that becomes the fuel for our our faithfulness and obedience with God. Understand that it's his love for us. It's his ability to keep promises in our life and not ours. Because he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And the reality, if you look at Israel, is that they've never fully lived up to their covenant with God. But yet God continues to remain faithful to them. But here's what happens with Israel. And I think that you can put yourself, if you want to use the thought in these shoes for a moment. That the further they move away from that of Abraham's leadership and Joshua's leadership, the further they move away from those influences in their lives spiritually, the more their faith becomes diluted with that of the gods and the idol worshipers that are around them as well. And I think that we can see that at times happening in our own life. But I think what's beautiful, what God says to them is just because you chose to forget doesn't mean that I have forgotten. So in kind of a summation of this, here's what I believe Israel says to God. God, we've tried to drive the Canaanites out, but they're just too stubborn and will not go, is what they say. And God says, well, actually, the truth of the matter is not that you can't, but that you won't. Wow, that's a huge statement. It's not that you can't, but you won't. It's not that you're not strong enough. It's not that at all. It's that you are not confident enough in God. Because we read those four words. Are those, those words back in chapter 1, Israel grew strong. So those are powerful words. That's why we understand this in that light. So God, so Mark, what are you saying to me? Are you saying to me that when God calls me to do the hard things in life like this, 
that I can't question God? Is that what you're saying to me? That, that I, I can't have doubt in my life at some point? Is, is that unallowed for me in, in my walk with God? Well, it brings us to this discussion for a moment in the middle of all of this. And that is that doubt and unbelief are two different experiences. Doubt and unbelief are two different experiences. That doubt unchecked in my life can eventually lead to unbelief. Yet, but what I see in the life of Israel, they're not questioning God. This is a matter of unbelief in their life. It is. Doubt is a part of our our thinking process. It is questions that we have for God. Doubt happens when the unseen elements of your faith meet the realities of the world in which we live in. It is exactly what it is. Doubt causes us to form questions that we ask God. So let me make sure that I'm not the only one in the room. How many have ever presented the why question to God? Raise your hand if you've ever asked God why. Good. I feel better. Really, I do. It makes me feel a whole lot better now. Yes. So it brought me to a scripture in the book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now, we're getting really Old Testament because we preach from Judges and Deuteronomy. And I mentioned Leviticus earlier. So we are. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So here is the thought for you and I this morning, that there are certain things that God reveals, and that is what makes faith possible. There are certain things that God keeps secret, and that is what makes faith possible necessary. Faith lives with unanswered questions and we cannot live in this world. And we just proved it by you raising your hand without asking the question, why? Why suffering God? Why so much evil, Lord? Why does the innocent suffer in this world, God? We ask those questions. We do. God, why are the Canaanites so stubborn? But God, even though in their stubbornness, we're going to trust you and we're going to have confidence in you, God, that you have strengthened us to simply drive them out of the land. But that is not what Israel does. That's not it at all. What they're saying to them is, God, is this? God, you're not able. God, we lack the confidence in you. So God, what we're going to do is we're going to create a compromise. We're going to come up with our own plan in all of this, Lord. And we expect you to really like it and and be proud of us in the middle of all of this. It is okay for you to ask questions of God. It is okay. See, I grew up in it with a church background where it was always hammered in me that somehow that was an affront to my faith if I ever asked God why. And what I realized is it is okay for me to do that. And there's plenty scriptural foundation for me to walk in that and to understand that as well. But it doesn't excuse in my life this thing of unbelief. It doesn't. So what do these questions, you know, benefit me? How do they benefit me in my life? And one thing that I wrote down in my journal this week that it benefits me in the area that is your faith inherited or is it your faith? Is your faith inherited or is it your faith? 
Because when you find yourself surrounded by the Canaanites in the land that God has promised you, then it's going to, it's going to really cause you to think, here they are, and they no longer have Moses, and they no longer have Joshua, so where does their faith lie? And, and what they have to realize, they have to come to know that their faith is not an inherited faith necessarily from that of Moses and Joshua, but it has to be their own personal faith. So is your faith an inherited faith, or is it your faith? Because what I realize that questions push me to God is what they do. And help you to understand that my faith is in him, not someone else. Charles Spurgeon, who I love to use in so many sermons, said in one of his great sermons, as he was preaching on the difference between that of doubt and unbelief, he said that questions in our life or doubt in our life is like a raised foot is what he said. And he said that in this walk in life, you got to raise your foot to move either forward or backward. And doubt is just like that, that doubt can cause you a question of God can cause you to take a step forward with that foot and actually cause you to grow in your faith. But also it can cost you or cause you unchecked to take a step back as well and cause you to step back into unbelief within our lives. So I thought about that a lot. But what he said in his sermon is this, but it always has to start with the foot up. So it's okay for you to ask questions from God. Make sure those questions, though, are are framed in the confidence that, God, I don't understand you. I don't understand how you work. I don't understand, God, that you would bring us to the promised land, but yet there's still Canaanites living here. But I do have confidence in you, God, that you're going to strengthen us enough to drive all of them out of the land because that's what you've asked us to do. So you take that step forward. Here's what Israel does, though. They said, God, you brought us here. We're still surrounded by idol-worshiping nations, the Canaanites specifically. So, God, we don't have enough confidence in you, so we're going to take things into our own hands, and we're going to compromise within our life. And they take a step back into unbelief. You see, what I feel like I'm doing right now, I feel like I'm doing this spiritual hokey pokey. You ever done that before, right? You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out, you put your right foot in, and you what? Shake it all about. That's true. Yes. Should we stand and do that together? No, I won't do that with you, right? No, I'll spare you. But I want you to understand Because you can't frame Israel into the parameters of, well, they're just, they're just doubting God is what they're doing. They're just questioning God. No, no, they've moved far beyond doubt. You see, unbelief goes to the very core of what we believe about God. Unbelief moves beyond questioning God to accusing God is what it does. We draw our own conclusion about God's character and nature, and that's exactly what they did. Doubt. Doubt is questioning what we believe. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe and to trust God. So I wrote this in my journal this week about this. I said, doubt can be, doubt can be the fertile, I don't, there it is. Doubt can be the fertile soil where faith in God grows. Unbelief is the fertile soil in which disobedience flourishes. So, 
in light of understanding that what Israel is saying to God that we can't in reality is that we won't is really what they're saying because they don't have confidence in God that God will provide for them and strengthen them in looking and realizing the difference between doubt and unbelief in your life. So I have a question for you this morning. Here's the question. Where have you said, I can't, and the truth is you won't? Wow. Where have you said that in your life? Let me tell you how important this is. Hebrews 3 and 12 says, Take care, brothers, talking to you as I as Christians, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, is what he says, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened, which is the process of unbelief in our life, by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a warning. They say, God, we can't, we can't drive them out of the land, Lord. We can't do this. The next best thing is we're going to enslave them and everybody is going to be happy. And God's not happy. He's not pleased. You see, Tim Keller in his commentary of the book of Judges, he says there are five primary areas in life that you and I will struggle with in the area of unbelief. Five primary areas areas where we're going to say we can't, but what we really and truthfully should be saying is we won't. Five areas. Would you like to hear them? Are you excited about hearing them? You want me to move on? You probably should want me to move on, okay? Here they are. Number one, you ready? Integrity. God, if, if I were totally honest on my job, I would lose my job, God. God, you can't survive and play fair in my profession. And what you're actually saying to God is you're saying I can't when the truth is that you won't, is what you're saying to him. Would you like to hear the next one? Would you? Yes? You sure? They get worse. I'm just going to tell you, okay? I'm just putting it out there and being really honest with you. The next one is forgiveness. Yeah, I know I should forgive them, but I just can't. I want to stop for a moment, qualify this real quick for you, that I realize that forgiveness is a process. I understand that in our humanity, it is a process. I realize that. So I'm not devaluing the process that you, process that you may be engaged in at this very moment. I'm not. If you've been hurt greatly, I realize that. But what I'm saying to you is this, be honest with God. It's not that you can't forgive, but the truth of the matter is that you won't forgive. You ready for the third? Sure, it gets worse. Sexual temptation. Sexual temptation. God, I know it's wrong, but, but I, I just can't say no, God. I just can't say no. No, what you really should be saying to God is, I won't say no, because that's the truth. Yes. You say, but Mark, you're talking to a room full of Christians. Should you be talking like that, you know? And you're talking to students here this morning, and, and a lot of these students go to 
Christian colleges. So, God, you know, you shouldn't be talking. Maybe you're talking about the students that attend Clemson, but you're not talking about the other ones, right? Go Tigers. I'm a Clemson fan, right? So, yeah. If you're Clemson students, we love you. We're glad you're here. But you understand. Listen, I went to a Christian school. Can I tell you what? Kids that go to Christian schools still have sex outside of marriage. Wow. Look how quiet the room got. When stuff gets dicey, you guys get quiet on me. Man. God. I know it's wrong, but I can't. No, no. I know it's wrong, but I won't stop. The fourth, relationship issues. Yes. God, I know I shouldn't be with him. This relationship is absolutely toxic. But God, you would never want me to be lonely. So God, I can't end it. No, in reality, what you're saying is that you won't end it. Now, for all of you that are thinking, oh, this is my word to get out of my marriage. That's not what I mean, okay? So just back up for a moment, put the brakes on it, and hold on. But you understand what I mean. Are you ready for the fifth one? It gets worse, okay? I'm just telling you, it does. The fifth is generosity. God, I can barely afford the essentials of life, God. I can barely afford them, Lord. Come on, God. I'm driving a car that only has heated seats, Lord. I don't have cooled seats. Come on. And for those of you that are really suffering out there in like a third world car and you're driving with cloth seats and not leather, you know, wow, you're thinking, come on, God, I'm really suffering over here, Lord, and I can't get the essentials in life, Lord. You know that. You know that, Father. And so, and you want me to tithe? See, I told you it was going to get worse. Some of you are offended by the word tithe, so I use something that's a little more palatable for you. First fruits, right? We say that. Yeah, that seems a little more palatable for us. That you want me to give, God? You want me to give the first fruit of my income, Lord? And I can't, I can't do the other things that I need to do in life. It's that you can't. It's not that at all. It's because you won't. So everybody breathe in for a moment. Now breathe out. Reach down. Take the seatbelt off. You're going to have to put it on in a minute again. So just hang on, right? But it's true. This is what I love about the book of Judges. It speaks to us. It speaks to us as we were the Israelites that we stand before God and in these five and others as well in our life. And we say to God, God, I can't. God, I can't stop doing this. I can't do that. God, I can't make this change in my life. I can't stop doing whatever it might be. Lord, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, get out of this toxic relationship. God, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, and the reality of all of that, when it comes down to all the excuses that you have given God, it's that you won't. That's what it is. And so Israel stands before God and Israel says, God, look, look, God, we've enslaved them. 
We, we're managing this, God. We're in control. And that's what we think we do at times, I think, in these areas, that we're in control of all of this. God, aren't you proud of us? God, aren't you proud of us? And what we realize is they have done this. They have not driven them out of the land completely. They have enslaved them because of their lack of confidence with God, their unbelief in God. It's not doubt. They're not questioning God. They, they disbelieve God. They, they, they don't believe that God will provide. They don't believe that God will keep his promises. They don't believe that God will strengthen them. And it's absolutely absolutely unbelief. And when you say things to God about these five areas that we struggle with in and out of our Christian walk with God, and when you say to God that I can't, what you really mean is you won't because you don't trust God in those areas of your life. Thank you for being here at Hope Fellowship. For some of you, it's your last Sunday, right? Yes, yes. Mark, I didn't, I didn't come here for this, you know? Come on, dude. I mean, you know, lighten up on us a little bit. Well, I mean, if we're going to preach in an expository manner, then you don't want me to brush over the hard stuff here. Because I, I would hope that you would be more disappointed in us as a church than you would be of us speaking the truth. This morning. So verse three, and we tie us all together. So now I say, I will not drive them out. God is saying, hey, understand this, that you have a part in this. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Last point before we pray, the most minute areas of unbelief can and will become a major defeat in our life. Let me read verse 11 and 12 to you and then make a comment and we pray. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, which are idols. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, those that they had enslaved. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. So the anger, see, this is why I told you before about justice with God and how he works in the Old Testament. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. The ones who once were strong and who held others captive are now become captive themselves. Because the reality of all of this is when we compromise with God, when we say to God we can't, when really what we're meaning is we won't, then those things that we think that we are managing in our life will ultimately manage us. They will. So Mark, what do we do? What do we do with this? One commentator regarding the book of Judges said that we should look at our hearts as the promised land of Canaan. To realize that it is not a complete work. It's not completely done yet. There's some task to be accomplished. And then we should prayerfully and by the power of the Spirit send out 
warriors of the gospel to the crevices of our hearts to find the Canaanites that are left behind. Because it's how the angel of the Lord started out these verses to you and I, recounting how good God is and how faithful God is and how much God loves us and how God is our deliverer so that the fuel of our obedience in our walk with God is that of his love for us and his faithfulness. So in light of that, I send gospel warriors out saying, God, I know you love me. God, I know you care for me. God, as you walk the children of Israel out of Egypt, then God, you will lead me out of this issue of my life. So God, I have great confidence in you. God, I may not understand all of the things that have gone on in my life, Lord. I may not understand why I'm so evil at times and so wicked. God, I may not even understand why this has happened to me that's caused this in my life. But God, I'm confident in you. See, that's doubt in the form of a question. But God, I'm confident in you. That if you promised it, then God, you will keep that promise for my life. So where does this begin, this journey? It begins with this. For you to be honest and stop saying you can't. And confess that you won't. huge, isn't it? That's huge. Well, Mark, to say that, then I have to admit that I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way it starts, right, in confession. Yes. That I'm honest with God in my life. I address the unbelief of my own heart. And I stop saying I can't, and I confess that I won't. Because when I read these texts, what I realize that it's so easy to claim that I manage these things in my life when ultimately they will end up managing me. You see, there's a a scripture in the book of Revelation. You can read it later if you like, chapter two. And at the end of verse four, it says, but I have this against you, talking to the church at Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Wow. This has been a great day. We've preached all the way from Deuteronomy to Revelation. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And we've done all that in a fairly short amount of time. So I think that what we do and what we see here is an opportunity to see how we digress in our spiritual life. To see how we move away like Israel did from Moses and then Joshua and their leadership to how we quickly digress to where we lose all of our confidence in God. So what the book of Revelation says to us is we start from the beginning. We start from the gospel. We start from a realization 
and understanding how much God loves us and cares for us. How, how confident that we are in the fact that whatever we find ourselves in, like Israel in Egypt for 400 years of slavery, that God is a promise keeper. And if God says that we come out, we're gonna come out. We're gonna be delivered. So what in your life this morning are you saying to God, I can't, when the truth of that is you won't? That's huge. So can I pray with you for a moment this morning? For those of you who are joining us online, would you bow your heads with us today and let's pray together as well. So Father, thank you for your words. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Judges, which speaks to exactly where we are because, God, that's just like you to meet us where we are in life. So, Father, as we look at our own hearts, as we dispatch the Holy Spirit that is resident within us as believers into those crevices of our heart, God, Lord, that you would reveal the Canaanites, reveal those areas of our life where we are saying to you through so many excuses, God, we can't when the truth is that we won't. So Lord, speak to us. Lord, let this be a moment where maybe for the first time in a long time that we are absolutely clearly truthful with you. So God, speak to us. God, you have reminded us of your great love for us. You have reminded us, Lord, that you are the deliverer of our lives. You have reminded us that you are the ultimate promise keeper even when we break promises with you. It doesn't affect your promises toward us. You have created the atmosphere for honesty with you today. Then, Lord, we need to step into it. And so, God, all these areas of our life, our integrity, Lord, our forgiveness, God, our sexual temptations, our generosity, Father, that, God, we stop in those and all the other areas of our life. And we stop saying, I can't. And we're honest with you and we say, I won't. I won't, God. But Lord, I repent of that today. God, empower me by your spirit as I have great confidence in you, God, that you will help me to overcome those areas of my life and I will be delivered just as you delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. So God, speak to me. God, I have questions for you, but my confidence still lies in you today. And I give you thanks for that. Do a work in our hearts by your spirit. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.